Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're continuing our study here of, of Romans chapter number 12. And of course, I want to encourage each of you as we have adopted this passage to be the bulk of some of our Bible memory for this particular year as we consider serving and what an excellent chapter to be in if you're thinking about service unto the Lord for uh, there's a whole section here. You've got the motive of serving in verses 1 and 2, those mercies of God. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. Uh, you've got the means of serving. That's really verse number 3 all the way down in verse number 8. And then from verse number 9 and following, uh, at least 9 through 16 or so, you, you've got uh, the type of service. And then in the last part of the chapter, you've got rebuttal to service. Um, and we have not used that phrase as an outline, but I'm just kind of conforming your mind to, to the, the theme by which Romans chapter 12 is delivered. But you get down to this rebuttal of service, you come to an interesting verse, one that we dealt with last week in some detail, really verse number 14. Uh, notice if you in verse 14, bless them which persecute you. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Last week we left off from this point and we looked at, as we have with each of these, our B's. Uh, we have maybe 12 of them that we're supposed to have with each other, concluding uh, with something of uh, a parenthetical, if you will, in verse number 16, to be of the same mind one to another. We were talking about be of humble, uh, be, be moving in the same direction. And then, of course, he comes to this particular passage in verse 14 and says, Bless them which persecute you. We had talked about the necessity in our service last week of really being Christ-like, of being Christ-like, blessing them, uh, that is, to speak well of them. And the word persecute there means those that would have you flee. That's right, if we've set our mind, and we should have, to set our mind to follow Christ, to be upright in our doings, to be holy, dedicated, unspotted from the world, if that is in, in fact the, uh, the way in which we're adhering to the biblical truth as it ought to be, there will be those who will be displeased with those. And they will berate upon them, they'll persecute, they'll press upon you. But yet he tells us in this particular verse, it's commended to us, bless them and curse not. And the example we looked at last week was in First Peter, but also in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's an important important uh, paradigm that is given because we have a responsibility in our life to be little Christ. We use the word Christian so much, but in Antioch the believers were first called Christians and it literally meant those little Christ. To be Christ-like is truly manifested when you're in a time of great difficulty. Let's hold our place here in Romans chapter 12 and turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 a little bit last week. Uh, seeing the example that Christ is led. But let's just set our minds a little bit here. 1 Peter chapter 4. And begin reading in verse number 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober. And has the emphasis of being seriously minded. And watch unto prayer. And note verse number 8. And above, what's it say? All things. That's always an easy one, isn't it? I could say by looking at verse 8 that this is going to be a preeminent one. 
It's one that I, as a child of God, within the confines of an assembly, and, and I, I think a sister passage here would be John chapter 13 and verses 33 and 34. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. In John chapter 13, in the context, it's quite interesting that Judas Iscariot has left the room. When the Lord is speaking that particular phrase in John chapter 13, he's talking to the 11. Judas is gone. They're all believers. Practically all of them would die a martyr's death for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I think so often that is looked at and stretched and contorted and rested out and the idea that God would have a, an expression of love just towards everything, even doctrinal error and untruth and ungodliness. A level, if you will, of understanding of, of uh, unbiblical choices and supportive of people. Uh, I think uh, in regards to these many things, we need to keep in mind the doctrine of love has always had parameters. But with the confines of the New Testament church and in the keeping of Peter where he's dealing with sufferings, note what he says, and above all things, have a fervent charity. There's a lot of things important within the confines of our church, but few are more important than love. And he's going to give you the promise of it. Why? Because for charity shall cover the what? It's not going to forgive you of your sins. No, only the blood of Jesus Christ does that. But as we deal one with another, you've got people in different places. You've got different personalities and temperaments. You've got different likes and dislikes. Keep with Romans chapter 12, you've got different levels and places of suffering. And so when we come to the house of God, we must be concoming to minister affection one with another. It shall cover a multitude of sins. Not so much necessarily the sin of forgiveness, as I've mentioned, that's only by the blood of Christ. But if you set your mind and heart to love God's people, you'll overlook a lot of the offenses that might be made towards you. And truly, offenses will come. Some want to say something that you don't appreciate, timing will be off. They'll like something that you don't like. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about preference. Your backgrounds are going to be distinct. The opportunity for friction and difficult, difficulty and discord is present. Love covers that if you set your mind against it. But I would also note that love covers a multiple, multitude of sin in that as I'm going through the sin from the outside that is afflicted on the inside. Some of you, no doubt, have hardships at your places of work. You're not working in a church. You're working at maybe the construction field, or maybe you're working in a field in which uh, people are very uh, harsh. Words are said against you. Words are said against you because of your behavior, because of your testimony of Jesus Christ. They have sinned against you. What a marvelous thing that you can come into the house of God, and there's the abundance, the superabundance of love. It momentarily hides some of that persecution, doesn't it? It has a way of feeling, filling the holes that have been left by the artillery of those that would use you despitefully. It strengthens you so that you can continue, as Romans chapter 12 would have, with these other uh, uh, admonitions and saying, and curse not. So let's pick up from here in Romans chapter 12. Last week, be Christ-like. Well, how else should I behave? How else should I minister to those that are opposed to the truths of the Word of God? I'm to be Christ-like. In keeping with this, I want to visit verse 15 for a moment. Because he 
moves a little bit differently. Verse 14 and 15 are linked together. Verse 15, he admonishes, I think primarily speaking, of those within the confines of the church. He says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. That's my responsibility, as we said a moment ago, in Christian love one to another. I have a responsibility to be sympathetic. I promise you there's probably rarely ever been a time where everybody in this assembly or every Christian in any other assembly has been touched by the same struggle in life. They don't work at different places. They don't have the same uh, background. They don't have the same health. They don't have the same financial background. No, I doubt there's ever been a time that quite like it was in the book of Acts, particularly in chapter 6, where difficulty without was abounding upon all of us to the same level of specificity. And we're to come into an assembly that has love, and he reminds us as we deal with one another because of the persecution that is present, have a level of sympathy one to another. Note the phrase there. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Now, let me back up just a moment. It seems like these last two months, our church has had a couple of opportunities to weep with those that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. You know, that's part of our responsibility one to another. You know, you look back over the last several, I don't know, weeks, we've had several funerals. Now, they're not all caused, or they're not caused because of, uh, because of those that hate the gospel. That's not the cause of those funerals. It's not as though any of those were taken away and beaten because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the time of loss is a great time that you have to weep one with another. I think about times of gain. Uh, we had a wedding. We'll probably have other weddings. That's a time of gain. That's a time where you can rejoice one with another. I would note there's an admonition both ways, isn't there? It's very often the case that when I'm in a time of mourning, someone else is in a time of rejoicing. When I'm commemorating a time in my life of great health, someone else might be having bad health. When I'm excited at the very opportunity that I've had a promotion or a raise or that some outlook in my life is grand, someone else's outlook might be poor. When I have the opportunity... God has bestowed, he's opened up a door and perhaps I've moved into my first home or my second home. Maybe someone else has never even been in the place of the opportunity to own a home. There's an admonition to the believers. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. number of ways. In time of loss, we think of a job loss. We think of sickness. We think of unexpected loss of someone that we loved. We think of a time of gain, a wedding, an employment, a time of gain, a birth. We got off the phone yesterday with someone that recently gave birth. Marvelous indeed. It's exciting. It's wonderful. It's hopeful. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. The reality is it should be noted in the life of a Christian that we have a responsibility to have sympathy with each other's grief. 
And someone might say, well, why do I have that responsibility? Why is it my responsibility within the confines of the assembly to have a level of sympathy one with another? Let me give you just a couple things. Number one, because that's the example your Savior set. For when Mary and Martha had buried Lazarus, do you remember? What did the Lord do? He came. That's the whole context of John chapter 11. He came and he abode with them. We could look at this as also being the example that is given throughout Scripture as being a second reason. It's the example of your Savior, but it's the example throughout Scripture. I would note when Job, when Job suffered all of that terrible grief that would unfold him in the first and second chapter, his children, his wealth, and yea, even his health, what happened? He had four different friends that would come and sit with him. That's the testimony. That's what it's likened to in this life, to be ready and willing to, how did Peter say it, have a fervent charity one with another. It's the example that Christ left. It's the example of scriptures. A second or third reason really I would give you about having the attitude of weeping and rejoicing one with another it's because we all belong to the same family of God. Now, I don't, I don't know how close you were to your family growing up. It seems like the older I get, the more appreciative I am of my siblings. I think if you could take, if you could go, well, I've always been thankful. None of you knew me as a teenager. I feel like it's helped my ministry. <clears throat> but I think if I could go back to being a 13, 14-year-old boy, I'd regret some of the things I said and did. The older I get, the more appreciative I am. Well, you know, it works like that in the church assembly, doesn't it? Sometimes where we really find great miss of one another's company is when it's no longer able to be had. We belong to the same family. In the scripture, he talks about doing good to those, especially those of the household of faith. I think of a fourth thing, a fourth reason that I need to have sympathy one with another. It's because we are subject to the same trials or perhaps instead of same similar trials and afflictions. I remember I was working at a store and I didn't particularly care for the job that I was doing. It wasn't my life calling. It wasn't my career vocational choice but it's where I worked and it paid the bills and one day they called a meeting and in the meeting they announced how the store was closing and we had till the end of the year and uh, this probably was about October November and my wife was I don't know eight plus months expecting our first child and I was going to lose my job and I remember having to process all of this but again I would submit that I wasn't a fan of this job, but I watched in that moment the tears that people had, and their tears wore against my heart. Not only because of what they were going to be missing in one sense, but now I begin to think maybe it's worse than I think it is. As I went to church, and here come to find out was a fellow that had recently lost his job, and his testimony how God had provided to him was a strength to me in that time. We have similar trials and afflictions. Let me give you a fifth reason to have some sympathy one with another. 
We must have some sympathy one with another because we cannot expect a sympathy from a cold and unfeeling world. I'm thankful at times in my life that I've had good neighbors. Neighbors that would, that I think I could be counted as, as, as an honor to have them as my neighbor. That they wouldn't steal from me. Um, that they'd check my mail, that I'd give them a key to my house and I could have a level of trust. I've been thankful for that. But that in no way can compare to those that have the same precious faith in Jesus Christ. Their words of consolation is greater. Their words of comfort, far more reaching. Their warm embrace, far more desirable than those of this cold world I live in. These are a couple reasons we ought to have some sympathy one to another. Notice, if you will, in verse number 17, we covered verse 16 some time ago. And I really think that 15 and 16 are kind of a parenthetical expression because he's going to start with verse 14 about really dealing with the unbeliever, particularly those that oppose you. And that's how he's going to conclude in verse number 21. But the fact is, once you've introduced it in verse 14, I believe the Holy Spirit's design on it is to remind you that that's one of the great reasons you have in this life to have the same mind and to be sympathetic because the outside world is not the same thing as worshiping together in the household of faith. And so now moving to verse 17, dealing with those that are cursing. He says, recompense no man evil for evil. I would submit to you, and this is a hard statement, be patient. Recompense, I'm not to reward someone for the evil that they have done to me. Recompense, God will repay. Time is the great indicator of this truth. Move down through the narrative. I, I think of the book that we're studying on Thursday night. We've stepped, or rather Sunday night, we've stepped away from it for a couple of weeks. But, uh, uh, but Zechariah the prophet, and he, he talks about in, in uh, chapter 2 about these kingdoms that had touched the apple of his eye and how they went farther than what he wanted them to go and how he was going to judge them. It didn't happen overnight, but did it happen? Absolutely. God will repay. You cannot mistreat God's people and expect to escape unscathed. That's the lesson that Zechariah was instructing in his prophecies. And that's the very message here that is conveyed through the Apostle Paul. Recompense no man evil to evil. Now that works in the outside world, but it ought to really work in this world as well. For truly the Corinthian church had this. They were going to court one with another. And God said, why not just count it loss? Knowing that God will take care of the matter. I think we live in a society that too often is worried about getting all of their rights, making sure that everybody dots every I and crosses every T of every liberty that we have. God is more concerned with your obedience to His will than He is with your rights. Now I know that's in direct contrast to what is heard across the news waves. But God is more concerned that you live like He would have you live than He is that you have every right and embrace every freedom that your heart wants. You remember what Jeremiah said about your heart? That it is what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Let me give you a good message for your heart. Write this down. I'll give you a good message for your heart. It's something you need to do this every day. Two things that you need to do to your heart 
every day. If you fail to do this, you're going to have problems in the day. Number one, you've got to make sure that you preach the truth of the Word of God to your heart. You need to confront your heart with the unadulterated truths of the Word of God. That'll help your behavior. You look in the mirror and you see that beautiful person looking back at you. And you say, wow, you're wonderful. No, that's when you need to convert all of the truth of your mind from the Word of God and say, man, you have a deceitful heart. You're desperately wicked. But there's a second thing you need to do to your heart throughout the day. You ready? You need to tell your heart to be quiet. <laughs> the Greek word there is shutty up. Your heart has longings. Your heart has desires. Your heart has ambitions. And just because your heart has those does not mean they are God's will for your life. So tell your heart to be quiet and to be satisfied with the eternal truths of God's Word. So you're wronged. And the opportunity comes for you to clean a clock because that person cleaned yours early in the week. What do you need to tell your heart to do? Be quiet. And you need to preach Romans 12 to your heart. God's repayment may not be in accordance to our means. It may not be in accordance to our method. And it may not be in accordance to our mentality when we think it ought to be. But God will always repay. Be patient. The child of God's responsibility, being one that has been the recipient of evil, is to always do right. As a boy, I was thankful. My dad would always tell me this. Do right, son. Even if the stars fall from their silvery sockets, do right. It's never right to do wrong, even if you might have an opportunity to do right. So if you've been mistreated by those without Christ, if you've been mistreated to an essence by those within Christ, you do not have a license to avenge yourself. Be patient. The psalm is penned in the 37th Psalm. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. In fact, let's look there together. Look in Psalm 37. Here's a man, he, the psalmist. As he's penning this, he's obviously being confronted with someone or someones that are seeking to do evil. And he has a problem. They are having a margin of success against him. and He seems to be having a margin of difficulty in return. So his heart is crying out, Lord, what about justice? Lord, what about fairness? What about me, God? And note what the Lord says, 37 verse 1. Fret not thyself because of what? evildoers. Neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Why? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and what? Withers green herb. So while you're waiting for this to occur, while God's judgment is in its way, what are you to do? Trust in the Lord and do good. Do right. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord. 
and he shall bring it to pass. Or he shall give thee rather desires of thine heart, bring to pass the next verse. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. What's he bringing to pass? Well, contextually, it's part of that judgment. He'll take care of business. A lot of folks think that that means if I really want something and I'll do right, God will give it to me. That's not true. Why not? Because it's unbiblical. Paul was sick, wasn't he? And he wanted this sickness to be moved away from him. And did God do it? No. You want something as bad as you want. All day you can want it. Don't attempt to manipulate a sovereign God. Now notice what he does here. Rest in the Lord in verse 7. Wait patiently for him. Here's another time he's used this word. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Who's that? Of the man that bringeth wicked devices to pass. It goes on in verse number 13 and says, The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth the day is coming. What day? Day of judgment. The wicked have drawn their sword. By emphasis, the wicked have bent their bow. To cast down the poor and needy and to slay such would be of upright conversation. What's the promise in verse 15? Their sword shall enter into their own heart. When it goes on, you look at verse number 37. Now you look at verse 28 too, but just for context, verse number 37. Mark the perfect man, behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But transgressors shall be destroyed together, and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. So what do you do? Patience. 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 Be patient. Notice back in Romans chapter 12, the last half of verse 17. He says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Well, we live in a dishonest world, don't we? I heard a historian some time ago. I dearly wish I could remember every emphasis of this. It was quite humorous because it's quite true. But he talked about uh, three universal untruths and two of them you would know right away. I forget what they were. But the third one was any promise of a politician. That was his third one. It's a universal untruth. And a promise that a politician's ever made you. At least in the free world, they can't just do it. Now you think about what it requires to get a bill into a law in this country. You've got to have 60 U.S. senators sign off on it. I don't think they could have that if they had to decide what they'd want to eat. You've got to have 200 and, what is it, 238, 235, something like that. 240, I forget the number. Half of whatever 435 is. To pass a vote in the bill in the House, House of Representatives. And then you've got to have a president willing to sign it. Well, we live in a world where people make promises all the time. If you'll only do this, this will happen. Well, here the Lord speaks in light of this, and he says, as you're living that life, you're recompensing no man evil for evil. Be honest. Be honest. We live in such a dishonest world, fine print, double meaning, legal jargon, litigation that exists. We must develop in our heart a desire to love and respect that which is wholesome and right. 
That brings an interesting question, doesn't it? What is right? What is fair? What should we be concerned about in life? We should be concerned with what is truth. Not our behaviors, not our feelings, but truth. In Titus chapter 2, Titus being addressed by the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, he tells him in chapter 1, I forget those things which are sound doctrine. And that the aged men should be like this, and the younger men like this, and the aged women and the younger women likewise. And then he comes down even to the servants. He's talking about their decorum and behavior in, in life. And this is what he said about servants in chapter 2 and verse 10. Not purloining. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrines of God our Savior in all things. Let me ask you a question. What is purloining? It's employment theft. That's what happens. We call it a lot of things in our society today. We'll call it shrinkage. You ever heard that? We get a shipment of goods in at the store, and they had already calculated that they would, we'd do an inventory once a year, but there would always be shrinkage. I suppose shrinkage could be that somebody initially miscounted and put it in a box and said it was 15 of a product, but really it was 14 they miscounted. That possibly could be. But often, from my perspective, you know what shrinkage was? 15 came, 14 were rung up, one went out the door. That's purloining. It's, take, it's theft. Paul's admonishing Timothy. Timothy, as you're preaching sound doctrine, make sure as you deal in relationship to service, not purloining. Be satisfied with what things you have. Even if you can take something that you uh, could take and no one could know about it, be honest. Do right because right is what you ought to do. Be honest in the sight of all men. I think I'm to be honest with my life, my actions. I, we could even speak about being honest with our speech. The tendency sometimes, I think about the Proverbs, he talks about the man that uh, says egregious things and says, is it not a jest? How you say things. Now I enjoy a good yarn, you know, a kind of a fake story. But the reality is I'm dealing with people. I need to be a person of some honest integrity. I mean, after all, how am I going to bring joy and rejoice with them that rejoice if my words hold no weight? Flip back up. Look up with your eyes. Verse number nine. Let love be without what? You know what dissimulation is. That's hypocrisy. The very definition of hypocrisy is not honest. So if my words are always full with never and always, and my words are so extreme all the time, how would somebody ever believe me when I was seeking to convey truth to them? Be honest. Look down, if you will, in verse number 18. If it be possible, as much as life within you, live peaceably with all men. Here we come to another one, and we would simply entitle it, Be Peaceable. As much as lieth within you, there is a level of conditionality to it. We're to make sure that our side of the relationship is accurate. And I would add to that, abundantly sure. 
there's a lot of things that I just I was talking this morning about this in my heart. My, you know, there's a lot of things that doesn't matter if you're right or not. It just doesn't matter. I don't have to be right on the weather. That it was 72 degrees yesterday or 69 degrees or 19 degrees. I don't have to be right on the weather. What's it matter? I, I don't have to be right on the color of the carpet, the color of the chairs. I don't have to be right. But when it comes to the truths of the Word of God, I must hold my actions in comparison to that eternal truth. When it comes to other individuals, when it comes to burning the bridges in life, you better make sure, abundantly sure, that everything about your side of the relationship is absolutely correct. Peace should always be the inward desire of every believer. And aside from doctrinal truth and holiness, we as children of God should press at great lengths to sue for peace. In the early hours this morning, I was kind of putting some final thoughts on this evening's message. And there are 204 references in the Old Testament. I believe that's right, 204 references to peace. And 196 in the New Testament. But of those 204 references, they categorize their bulk in one of three or four ways. Not like the New Testament. But one of the most often ways the word peace is used in the Old Testament is with this phrase, held their peace. Do you know what that means? What's it mean? They were quiet. What a marvelous thing that sometimes an inability of a child of God to singularly just be quiet and be thankful holiness and godliness and rightness and truth. And yet so much happens because we just can't let go of some of the petty things. I think Philippians chapter 4, that Yodius and Sintichi, he said, I beg you to be of the same mind of the Lord. How much greater should our desire be for peace with those that are in Christ Jesus. Notice, if you will, we're going to kind of move these next three verses really in one general theme. He says, dearly beloved, he's going to revisit this again. It reminds us of verse 17. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, not your wrath. Let their wrath be done unto you. Await God's wrath, not your wrath, though. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, what do you do? Feed him. If he thirst, what do you do? Give him to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Proverbs 25 speaks of this. In the Middle Eastern culture, that would be the essence. It's not the idea of, of burning. It's not the idea of burning that it's talking about. In the Middle Eastern culture, to show a sign of contrition, that's what they would do. They'd put coals in a tin on their head. That's what that has the idea of. The idea of your behavior may be worked of in God in their life that they turn from that behavior. And he goes on in verse 21, 
be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with. So for our last point in chapter 12, I'll entitle it this, be good. Be good. I as a believer should have a right behavior and a right walk. I should espouse the virtue of God's goodness in my life. Why? Because God is always the avenger of evil. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, listen to these words. He saith, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 48, it is written, It is God that avengeth me, and that bringeth down people under me. In Nahum 1 and verse 2, the prophet is given these words, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversary. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. Hebrews 10 and verse 30, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. And I would conclude with James chapter 5. The judge standeth at the door. God is the judge. To Timothy, Paul wrote under inspiration, 2 Timothy. He said, I charge thee therefore by the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. There's going to be a judgment day. I as a child of God am going to give an account for my behaviors and my actions and the life that I have lived here. I'm going to give an account for how I have allowed the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God to so embrace my life that I take care how I build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give an account for me. And you're going to give account for you. And what a sad travesty it might be that our actions rob us of victory and an opportunity to glorify God. And to those that are evil, that hate the truth of the Word of God, they'll stand in a far worse judgment. For I'd rather stand before the Bema Seat judgment of Christ 10,000 times, 10,000 of times than to stand before the great white throne judgment one time. Revelation speaks about that day. The heavens have rolled away. There is no more earth. Just a blinding, dynamic glory of an eternal God. And the books are open. And the prestigious and the unknown, the rich and the poor, the small and the great, will give an account in that day. And the end of that day will be an eternal judgment, the lake of fire forever and ever. Yes, I'll stand ten thousands of times because of the righteousness of God. I would choose ten thousands of times to stand before the Bema Seat judgment. But a greater judgment still cometh yet. Be good. Be overcoming with good. We're not to allow the evil done to us to overcome us and overwhelm us. I think of Galatians 9, ye shall reap if you faint not, Galatians 6, 9. We must not allow our evil responses to overcome us. Don't allow your intemperate passions to get the best of you. They so often do that.
You know, every one of us has a little man inside of us. We've got to keep that fellow all pent up and tied to the cross of Christ. Why? Because he has said, let our speech be seasoned with grace. I'm to speak truth one to another. I'm to speak in edification one to another. I'm to do good. So there's no place in my life for my little man to get loose and be a ruination to the testimony and the leadership that God would have in this life. But what are some good things that I can do to my enemies? Well, number one, I can pray for them. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm to pray for all men. I can pray for them. Your prayer list ought to have the prayer request or, or, or the name of individuals that you're praying for that you're having a difficult time with. You don't have to write an epistle at it. I'd hate for somebody to see it and think poorly of you. But you, you've got a situation in your life where you're receiving persecution. Write it down. Pray about it. Throw it on the mercy seat. Cast it onto God who is able to sustain it. Number two, I'll give you another goodness to show your enemies. Forgive them. There's great truths in the doctrine of forgiveness within the confines of the assembly. I'm to forgive the brethren 40, uh, what is it, uh, 70 times 7. I'm to forgive the, the brethren as Christ hath forgiven me. But oh, how it is important as much as lieth within us to forgive those who have despitefully used us. Forgive them. You know, the failure to forgive individuals means there'll be a birth of bitterness in your heart that will ultimately be a ruination to you. Number three, where possible, another way I can show good to them is I can aid them. I can be of a help to them. Number four, in keeping with that, maybe I can assist them. I'm thinking in the very general things here. Pre-adventure, there's a way that I can aid them. If they hunger, what can I do? If they thirst, what can I do? I would say with that, another thing is, this is more of a practical thing. I can be admitting to them of my faults. You know, often that's the case. We come in conflict with someone and we would fail to admit that we've ever done anything wrong. Have a humble approach to it. Here's another one. And this is so important. I can be an example of good. I can live like Christ. How was Christ on the cross of Calvary? When he was reviled, what did he do? He read it last week, he reviled not again. There was no guile or deception found in his mouth at all. Oh, how it is possible. Because of his tender and wonderful mercies, we were once the enemies of God. And now because of his marvelous grace, we're the sons of God. He died for the ungodly. Surely our service towards those that would curse and persecute should be to avenge not and to overcome evil with good. Ministering. Let's stand our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 
1712 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.